All right. How about we start just a couple minutes early today? You've had plenty of time to eat, I hope. We've got a lot to cover tonight. As a matter of fact, tonight's the kind of night where I know you're not going to be able to write everything down, you note takers, so write down the highlights. Uh, It's always available. By God's grace, it'll be available, I hope, if all works well, on the stream and on the internet, and you can go back and get some details, but it'll be frustrating, so no groaning or moaning. You're going too fast. You're going too fast. It's a lot to cover. This week and next week, these are the most fundamental, critical issues that we face. Everyone's going to point back to this, our source of authority. So we've got to cover a lot of ground, and uh, we want to deal with that as efficiently and uh, swiftly, uh, unfortunately, as possible. So uh, if we just would plan for four-hour compass nights, then it would be a lot easier. Yeah, right. But uh, you know what happened in the book of Acts when they preached on and on until midnight? There were bad things that happened, so... So let's pray about this, and then we're going to dive right in. Let's pray. God, we do ask for your help in retaining information, even if there's too many details tonight. I know it's a lot of the background that will help us have confidence, even if we can only recite the high points as we deal with our non-Christian neighbors and friends and family members. So, God, I just pray you would work in our hearts and minds, keep us alert and sharp, let us work through these questions and issues in a way that will ground us and equip us for the kinds of conversations you'll lead us into. And I pray that you would lead us into conversations. God, prepare our path, those good works that you've prepared beforehand for us, and let us see that you prepared that path for us to speak about these things, to do it boldly, as we prayed about this last weekend in our church service, that we would be bold and clear about the issues. And as we make the most of every opportunity with our outsiders that we encounter. I just pray you'd help us take this information and appropriate it in those conversations. So uh, govern our time together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm going to talk about the Bible controversy. The critics. Letter A. There's a lot of claims that the critics have about the Bible. Of course, they say things like this. This isn't meant to be comprehensive. This is not even meant to be some logical progression. I'm just saying, here are the kinds of things you hear. You hear lines like, well, you know, the Bible, it's been translated thousands of times. Its message evolved for generations. It's been corrupted through the centuries. Uh, Some say now, a very popular myth on college campuses. Perhaps you've heard it at work. It's been constructed by politicians that have agendas, uh, books. They say we're excluded. There was a lot of different versions of Christ and the Gospels out there. And they were just cherry-picked to be able to present some kind of planned and desirable message to the masses. Uh, It was written centuries after uh, the events based on oral tradition. Uh, It was shaped uh, and edited by religious leaders. Uh, They say things like it's just a collection of made-up stories Uh, It's a book of superstition and myth. That's just how we need to approach it. It's only meant to be a set of parables to live by. It's not meant to be taken as fact or history. Uh, It's just people musing about the unknown. We're just guessing about God. Uh, It should not be taken seriously. These are the kinds of things that we hear. And yet the Bible, on the other hand, presents itself much differently. If you read it, as you would read a newspaper, as you would read a note on a kitchen table, you're going to come away with a completely different 
sense of what the Bible is presenting itself to be. It is clearly presenting itself to be taken as factual and historical. That's how it's presented to us. As we've tried to echo the words coined by Francis Schaeffer, it is true truth, as though it needed an adjective to try and tell us that what we mean is something that actually corresponds with reality. Things that are spoken of on this side, on the, in the natural world, they're presented to us as though they actually happen. And the things that, that go beyond that, that, that represent God, that think God we can't see, that uh, dwells in an approachable light, it claims to be revelation, and it claims to be factual and accurate and corresponding to reality. Take, for instance, the way, and this is just very selective. There's a million passages we could go to. That's uh, hyperbole, of course. But there's dozens and dozens of passages we could look at that would say this kind of thing. This is the very first uh, section here, first two verses of First John. Uh, it starts very poetically and majestically. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and we've touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest. We've seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and he's made it manifest to us. God has revealed, we've presented it, we've heard it, we've seen it, we've looked at it, we've touched it, we felt it, and now we're presenting it to you. You cannot read that and think that this is meant to be presented as some kind of uh, parable to live by or some, you know, mythical superstition or our best thoughts about God. These are meant to be truthful. As Peter says, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. He dismisses it. He separates himself from the myths of the day, the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. This is not what we're talking about. Uh, We're talking about something we made known to you that relates to the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty, not following cleverly devised myths, but we're letting you know things that we saw. For when he received honor and glory, now he's speaking to one particular situation there, the Mount of Transfiguration, from God the Father, the voice that was born to him by majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice voice born from heaven. It rattled the bones in our inner ear, our eardrum vibrated, we heard these things. For we were with him, we saw him, we were there on that holy mountain. Just speaking of one incident, and Peter's trying to say very clearly, just like John was saying, we saw things, we heard things, we saw them in real time, and we're presenting them to you as truth. Bible claims to not only be factual and historical, it claims to be God's factual message to us, that he, in another reality, another domain, is breaking through into space and time to give us a message. Back to Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. He says, you will do well to pay attention speaking of the Bible here, the writings of the scriptures, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture, prophecy is the idea of a mouthpiece that God has spoken from where he is to where we are. No prophecy of scripture, scripture, by the way, is the word for writing. It's come to be known like the word Bible, which means book, the specific book that we read that's filled with biblical prophecies which is not just foretelling the future, it's just stating the reality of what's going on and what God wants us to know, that none of that came from one's own interpretation. He didn't muse and think about the other side and what God was like and say, well, here's what I think. That's not what prophecy claims. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. I want to say this. I think that people ought to believe this because I believe it and I thought about it and this was my interpretation of God. Rather, the claim of Scripture is that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, the God of the universe, 
has sent his spirit to move the prophets to speak these things and then to write them down. This is the claim of scripture. Perhaps the one you're most familiar with, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Paul speaks to Timothy, a pastor in Ephesus, and he says, think back to your childhood. From childhood, you were acquainted with the sacred writings. Another phrase to represent the scriptures, the prophetic word, things written in the Bible. They're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, which is a great translation of the word theopneustos. Theopneustos is that compound word that is translated in uh, the King James Bible, unfortunately. It's translated inspiration, which no longer means inspiration the way it meant it when it was translated in Tyndale and in the King James Version in the 16th and 17th century because inspiration back then came from the Latin word inspiro, which meant to breathe out. And when you say inspiration today, you think about being inspired or moved or having some emotive thing happen in your heart where you think, I'm just going to go do this. That's not what the Bible says about itself. It doesn't say that the authors were inspired, felt moved to write something, It says that the actual documents themselves, the scripture, the sacred writings have been breathed out by God. And the picture is like you would sit there on a cold day and say something and someone would hear it. It's as though it's the voice of God in writing. God is speaking and communicating to human beings and it's as though he breathed these words out. Just like you could feel it on a normal temperature day and you can see it. If the temperature's right, the moisture's right, you can see your breath. That's the picture. All scripture is breathed out by God, and therefore human beings need to take profit from it. It's God instructing us, reproving us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness so that the man of God can be equipped for, can be complete rather, and equipped for every good work. This is what God wants us to know, and God wants us to do. And this scripture is going to present itself as factual and historical, and more importantly, God's factual information to human beings. That's the claim of the Bible. So when the critic comes and says, well, it's not meant to be taken seriously, here's a couple of passages. I hope you wrote the references down. You can say, well, wait a minute. Let's pull up on our phone the Bible and let me read to you. Or better, better, I, I would turn your phone to them and say, why don't you read what it says? And then you ask them, what do you think that means? How do you, do you think that means that they actually think this was true, true truth, that this was real, that this was meant to be factual and historical? And passages like this. That this is God speaking through these writings. God is speaking these writings, not through them. He's speaking the writings. That's the picture here, as odd as that may be to say it that way. So the Bible controversy is going to leave us with two primary questions to address. Okay, We're going to have to deal with two things. Number one, is what we have there in your phone and on your iPad and on your laptop and in your printed Bible, is it what was written Because that's a big part of the criticism, is what you have, what was actually written. That's that's question number one. Question number two is, is what they wrote, if we have an accurate picture of what they wrote, is that actually God's message? Because we're trying to deal with both of those. And I presented those to you. Factual information, historical information, that's what it claims to be. And then, do we have a record of that? Is that that really what you're carrying around, is an accurate record of what was written? And then, is it really from God? How would we know that? Well, this week we're going to deal with the first question. What is written in the past? Is that what you have in your phone? Is that what you have in your lap on the table right now? And the next week, 
okay, so maybe you've got an accurate record of what Isaiah wrote, what Moses wrote, what Jeremiah wrote, what Mark wrote, what John wrote, what Peter wrote, but is that really God's word? So both of those are big, big questions. And we're going to spend two weeks dealing with that because these are the fundamental issues. Because if you can get down to this, right, we combine last week with this week and next week, you basically come back to what Schaefer wisely presented to us, Francis Schaefer, saying there is a God and he has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself in the Bible. The Bible is his revelation, to be more specific. And if that's the case, then everything else becomes, let's become good students of the Bible and find out what God says about who he is, who we are, and what we ought to do, what we ought to think, what we ought to believe. You solve this, we've solved a ton. Everything else is ancillary to that. As a matter of fact, everything else that we're going to deal with in this series is going to get back to, well, what does the Bible say if God has revealed himself? In other words, what does God say about evil? What does God say about other religions? What does God say about morality? What does God say about ethical behavior? And we're going to figure that out. But we've got to deal with these issues. Is there a God, which I think is, as I said last week, such an intuitive reality, even our modern scientific age cannot eradicate this from our population. And then it comes down to the book. Is this book what was really written back in the day when it was supposed to be written? And is it really God's message to us? All right, well, let's deal with this really for the rest of our time, but it's going to set up just being more specific with, is our Bible what the authors wrote? Okay, from Moses to John on the island of Patmos, are these books really what those guys wrote? We'll table for now whether or not it's God's word. We're just going to find out, is this what they wrote? Here's the challenge, okay? The challenge is, based on when it was written, which was not a year ago or a hundred years ago or even a thousand years ago, the challenge is that all ancient paper wears out. And that's a problem because all this stuff was written on ancient paper. Now, they did write some things on pots and on stone and on you know, uh, metal even. And some of our oldest Old Testament inscriptions are on metal. But, uh, and some on vellum, which is animal skins. But most of it was written on this This is papyrus. Papyrus comes from a plant, a plant that was uh, frequently available and and readily available on the banks of the wadis of the rivers and and the banks of the the rivers. And, And you would go get your papyrus plant. You would take it, you would dry it out, you would roll it into strips, you'd put those strips in a cross hatch, and that cross hatch then created a piece of paper. That's what we would call it. And it's called a papyrus, uh, plural. It's a papyri, right? Multiple, the papyri of the Bible, okay? So you take that piece of paper and then they would take ink, which of course they did from dyes. They did dyed a lot of things way back, all the way back to antiquity and they would write on it. So they had, this was the problem, paper that wasn't gonna last too long. At least it's not designed to last too long. It's made of biological dried material and they would write on it. So all ancient paper wears out. Okay. This is not uniquely a biblical problem. There's no ancient book that still has the original documents. We just don't have it for anything. Why? Because everything in antiquity, with the exception of some stone and metal writings, which is very hard to write anything of substance, you have it on papyrus mostly. That's the the material and the medium of the ancient world, it's going to go away. That means that everything you've ever learned about history, if you go back far enough, right, we don't have any original copies of it. Everything you learn, even in early Western civilization, in the ancient Near East, uh, if you learn anything about Babylon or Assyria or Egypt, all of this was written on 
manuscripts that we no longer have, documents that we no longer have, okay? So there are no ancient copy machines. There's no way for us to take a digital scan of anything. There's no Xerox out there. So this is the challenge. Ancient paper wears out. We don't have any originals. There's no mechanical way to do it. Therefore, human beings are involved. And when human beings are involved in copying things, right, they make errors. And you could make the assumption, as some people try to make, that wouldn't God just guide this so there'd be no mistakes? Well, that's one of the easiest myths to disprove if you're a rational person. And all you have to do is look at all the ancient manuscripts we have out there, and we see clearly human error in copying those manuscripts. If I even put things on the screen and just this this very screen and said, all of you quickly copy this, we would have errors. Even if I said, slow down and copy it slowly, we probably wouldn't have 100% accuracy. Okay, So we've got that problem. And then the problem is the copies that were done were also done on ancient paper. Think about it. Right? The original's written on ancient paper, papyrus, some on vellum, but mostly papyrus, and even vellum is going to go away, right? Ancient uh, animal skins. And then they're going to make copies of it on what? On ancient paper. What's going to happen to that? Well, those are going to deteriorate as well. So that's the challenge. And what's the result? Well, we don't have any originals of any Bible book, not just any ancient book. We can't point to any manuscript of any text of scripture where any author of the text of scripture actually put a pen, a stylus to papyrus. We just don't, we don't have it, nor do you have it of any other ancient book, as I said. Many of the copies have deteriorated. A lot of the copies that we can even work with and we'll look back on, they're not here anymore. So that's the problem. So what's our hope? If we're going to reassemble what it is that was originally written, what you're hoping for is very old copies, right? Why do I want old copies? Why do I want old copies that are closest to the original, right? Well, that's a very simple thing because it then has less time to compound any copying errors. If I make you copy the screen and then I turn the screen off and I have you take your worksheet and hand it to someone down the hall and they make a copy and then someone across the way makes a copy and they take it home and have their, 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 their relative make a copy and their relative takes it to work and has a coworker make a copy. We want to be as close to the original of you taking a copy of this as possible. And if your paper is going to be destroyed in a, in a day or two and then the paper at down the hall that the person wrote is going to be destroyed in in a few days or a few weeks. We want to get back as far as we can to close the gap so we have less time for compounding the copy errors. Okay, I know I'm being very simple with this, but I'm going quickly, so smile at me if you get it. That one's pretty easy, right? Okay, number two, I want many old copies. I don't just want old copies. I want as many old copies as possible. Why? Because if I got a lot of old copies and everyone right here did exactly what I said, you all made a copy of the screen, you all go across the, 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 the campus, because there's twice as many people around the campus tonight as there are in this room, and you had them all make copies, and then they all went home and had a relative make a copy, and then all those relatives went to work and had a coworker make a copy, and now I had thousands of copies of something I had you copy on the screen. You know what I want? If a bunch of them had deteriorated and gone away, I want as many of them as possible to compare to find out what my Mike actually put on the screen. You see that? So I want more copies to compare. And there's differences there. We call that variance. There's a variation between what you copied and what the coworker of that guy copied that was from someone else's paper, from someone else down the hall, from someone else's family member, from someone else's coworker. I want more copies to compare those variants. 
And then, then I have a better ability to reconstruct the original. I want to know what was actually on the screen. So the older the copies, the better, and the more old copies, the better. Very simple. Every single piece of history, every single piece of poetry, every single piece of prose, all relies on this from antiquity. We've got to have old copies would be good, and we've got to have a lot of copies. That would be good. Okay, the result, well, the result is the Bible has a great advantage. Okay, now we're going to move through this quickly, but I just want you to think, probably more than you need up on the screen right now, but when it comes to when these things were written, Please remember the Old Testament was written between 1445 B.C. to 430 B.C. So that's our time span. About a a thousand year period from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end. And some of you smile at me if you were in Old Testament survey. You remember this. There was only a handful of books that create the backbone of the Old Testament history. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah. Everything else fits into that time frame. And it starts with 1445 B.C., not the story, but when it was written, all the way to the end of the reconstruction of Israel after the Babylonian captivity, which is what that red stripe represents. Now, what it speaks of are things that, some of the things we don't know the time for. I mean, we start to be able to construct the time pretty quickly in in Genesis, but we can't construct the time of creation. We don't know when that is. Abraham, rough and dirty, around 2000 B.C. The Exodus, 1445 B.C. So why do I put the writing of the first books of the Bible in 1445 B.C.? Because if you know your biblical history, that's when they exited out of Egypt And they went into the wilderness wanderings for 40 years. And immediately, Moses starts writing the Bible. Why? Because God has revealed to him right out of the gate on Mount Sinai, starting with the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and we have the beginning of the Old Testament. And he got 40 years, almost 40 years, because Moses dies near the end of the wilderness wanderings, and he writes the Bible. So starting in 1445, 1444, rough and dirty, we start the writing of the Old Testament, okay? Got the conquest in 1400, that's Joshua. Samuel, just to give you some highlights here, around uh, 1050. David, around 1,000. That's good for us to remember. Abraham, 2,000. David, 1,000. You have the fall of the northern tribes in 721, the fall of the southern tribes in 586, and then we have the nation restored in 430, Okay, So we would say this is the formation of the nation, 2000 to 1375. The theocracy, as God sets up his nation and tries to directly govern it through prophets and, and judges. And then a monarchy when he sets up a king with Saul. And then the restoration of the kingdom after the Babylonian captivity. Okay, So the rest of the Old Testament fits into this. Right Here are the backbone books of the Bible. And you've got the writing here, 1445 B.C., and everything else fits into that. Leviticus, Deuteronomy, right? You've got Ruth, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Esther, Job, somewhere in the time frame of Genesis, even though it was written probably during Solomon's day. The Psalms, the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, okay? Then you've got everything else, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Ezekiel Daniel in the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah Lamentations at the end of the southern kingdom, right before 586. Hosea is to the north. Joel to the south. Amos to the north. 
prophesying to the ten northern tribes. Obadiah was a foreign prophet. He went to Edom, Jonah to Nineveh, Micah, Nahum back to Nineveh, Micah to the southern tribes, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Only three prophets in chronological order in the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So there's all the books of the Old Testament, and they lead all the way up to about 430, 440 BC. Everything fits into that time frame. So quick overview. I know that was fast, but the Old Testament, there's our picture, 445 to 430. Now, we don't have copy machines, but we have something very helpful in the Old Testament, professional human copy machines, quote unquote, okay? The scribes had meticulous rules about copying the scripture. It was the most important thing that they did. They had a a meticulous set. I'll read Josephus, who was the chronicler, the, the historian of ancient Israel. He was conscripted by Rome in the first century, and he took all the sources and wrote about the Old Testament. And here's what he said about the copying of the Old Testament. He said, we have given practical proofs of our reverence for our own scriptures. He's writing this to the world, right? Being underwritten by the Romans. For although such long ages have now passed, Right? He's writing from the first century, talking about Moses, 1,400 years before him. He says, no one has ventured either to add or to remove or to alter a syllable of our holy scriptures. It is an instinct with every Jew from the day of his birth to regard them as a decree of God, to abide by them, and if need be, cheerfully die for them. That's how the average Jewish person thought about the scriptures. And then there was a set of people in Israel called the scribes, and they were the professional human copy machines. That was their job. And there were all kinds of rules. They had to make their papyrus sheets with exactly the same number of lines, the exact same number of columns in terms of what they were writing, uh, the list, the extending between the lines of what they were going to do. They had to copy every line and then go back and check it all. They had to count every word and every letter. They would stop, of course, at the writing of God's name. They had a special ritual for that. They had all kinds of rules that were all transcribed uh, and given to us. Uh, I mean, that we have extant copies of 10th century Jewish rabbi, uh, or scribes rather, speaking of, of the rabbi, speaking of what the scribes were required to do in the copying of scripture. So what did that leave us with? Well, it left us with an, an impressive set of old copies when it relates to the Old Testament. Now, this may be an outlier, but we have a fragment that has at least a few references from the Old Testament. This was the one on metal that I'd spoken of from 600 BC, and that's the oldest, rough and dirty 650, dating in that period of time. So this is even before the Old Testament was finished being written in 430. So this was the one, one most famous one you may have heard of, is the inscription on, a, on metal, on silver, of the Aaronic blessing back in, in uh, the book of Numbers. Right, The Lord make his face shine upon you. And that ironic blessing that was given by the priest over the people. Okay, Then we have something called the Dead Sea Scrolls that we're going to look more closely at that I think is pivotal, even in a workroom discussion to talk about with people. Dead Sea Scrolls from about 250 B.C. We also have, thanks to Alexander the Great, a major Greek translation in the 3rd century B.C. And we have fragments that are extant back to the second century AD, so a gap of only a hundred years between the writing of this thing we call the Septuagint, 
which means 70. There were 70 scholars dispatched to write this, translate this from Hebrew. So Alexander was building a great library in, in Egypt, and he wanted, of course, all the important books. And the most important book in antiquity was the Bible. So he had the Jewish people conscripted to write this book so he could have copies in the Alexandrian library. So that was very helpful because we have a very meticulously well-funded uh, conscription of scribes to translate the Old Testament into Greek called the Septuagint. Uh, abbreviated in your commentaries, by the way, by LXX. LXX, the Roman numerals for 70. That's where we get the word Septuagint. These ancient copies were not only religiously copied, they were religiously preserved. You might remember uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right, which we jokingly talk about, uh, melting your face off when you look inside of it. Uh, But all of that is akin to the kind of care they took with storing the scriptures in the temple, in the holy place. As a matter of fact, there's that scene in the Old Testament where they rediscover the scrolls because it's so sacred and so important and they kept them in such a special place they didn't even go in there during their apostasy periods until they went in and rediscovered these ancient dusty scrolls. And there were times when that happened, of course, during their waywardness. So, biblical advantage in the Old Testament, we'll talk more about that when we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that they were not only carefully, meticulously copied, they were religiously preserved, and we have a great, impressive set of them with a great professional league of people that were working to translate them. New Testament, whole different story. The time frame is not a 1,000 years, right? It's just a few decades between 45 A.D. and 95 A.D. And if you were with us in New Testament survey, you might remember this chart. We have on the left-hand column the writings of the Apostle Paul, the early writings, the major writings, the prison epistles, and the pastoral epistles. And on the right side, you have in the green there, that block, the general epistles. And then you have something we call prophecy, which was the one book standing alone in the New Testament that we know of as the book of Revelation. The first general epistle is James, written in 45 AD, and then all Paul's epistles in chronological order. In 48, it was Galatians, 1st Thess, 2nd Thess, 1st Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Those are the prison epistles. And the pastoral epistles, of course, 1st Timothy, Titus, and 2nd Timothy. There's your chronological order for Paul's epistles. The general epistles picked up after that. Hebrews, 1st Peter, 2nd Peter, Jude, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John. And then, of course, Revelation was written also by John. These are the epistles and the... Um, time frame, the bookends for the writing of the New Testament. Now, the difference is we don't have professional scribes writing, copying these, but we do have a huge number of old copies. Matter of fact, this is often the case, and you'll see a lot of charts uh, in normal apologetics seminars, but it's just a lot of data that I would throw at you right now. But let me just say this exponentially more than any other ancient book. Not only do we have about 5,600 Greek manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts in the original languages compared to, you know, one, two, five, six, twelve, a dozen, or even in the most important works of, of Homer, you might have up to six, seven hundred. Uh, there's no comparison when you're talking about thousands of ancient copies. So we have a lot, and that's good. Why? Because I want to compare the variants and the differences in those manuscripts to try and help me reconstruct what was actually written. So I got over 5,000 in Greek, and I have thousands in other ancient languages, as we'll see in a little bit. 
And the good news is not only I have a lot of copies, I have a lot of very old copies because I want that gap to be very small. I want the closer the date to the original than any other. And I don't have a big representation of manuscripts in the Old Testament getting me real close to the Old Testament original writings. But thankfully, I've got professional copy machines that gave their life and a group of Jewish people that gave their lives literally to protect and defend that book of the Old Testament. Very decentralized New Testament movement. But the good news is with all these copies, we can take a look at those variations and do a lot of good work to figure out what was originally written. We have fragments to the early 2nd century, at least 117, which is undisputed, unless you're crazy. I mean, any legitimate scholar is going to date John Ryland's papyrus and his set of papyrus in in the Gospel of John back to 117, the 1st century, 120. And even some books have been written, which I reviewed some even today that I'd read in the past, uh, trying to date some of these manuscripts just based on the handwriting and materials and how it was done back even into the first century. But in terms of scholarship and those that agree on just the basics of how you go about dating these manuscripts, uh, just consensus, unless you've got an axe to grind, and I mean the majority of people are going to say we've got fragments of the documents all the way back to the early second century. Great. But we've got to deal with the Old Testament. And when you're dealing with the Old Testament around the water cooler and someone says things like, well, this was just a developed story. It evolved over time. The one thing you've got to talk about with them is the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's talk about the importance of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I've already told you the problem with the Old Testament is when the Jews had their copies of the Old Testament and they wrote them down and copied them, made a copy of them with these professional human copy machines... Uh, part of the act of presenting this copy after everything had been counted, every character had been counted, everything had been carefully analyzed and reviewed, well, then they would take the old copies and ceremonially burn them, get rid of them. So you had, you don't have a lot of copies for us to compare, although you got a lot compared to other ancient documents. But uh, we've got a problem with the gap then. The gap is that we have a pretty big gap between the writings of the Pentateuch, let's say, and uh, even if I go from 1400, 1445, 1444 BC to 600, the first references to the Aaronic blessing on a piece of silver, or I start looking at some other documents um, like the Nash papyrus or others that come early in the common era, as they say, in, in after Christ's appearance, well, I, I, I got a big gap. As a matter of fact, most of the documents of the Old Testament that we have that date back to antiquity date back to the 800s. Uh, you know, the 9th century, the 10th century, the 11th century, where I'm getting complete Old Testaments in Hebrew. Well, people are going to say, well, that's a problem because all those prophecies about Christ could be written after the fact. At least that's the claim, which of course the Jews are never going to put into their manuscripts something that's going to validate the uh, reality of Christ the Messiah because of course, by and large, most of them have rejected the Messiah and so Jewish rabbis didn't want to in any way aid the Christians in trying to do anything with their documents, the Old Testament, that was going to validate the Christian claim. So that's an absurd accusation on its face. Nevertheless, it sure be good for us to have a lot of Old Testament predating Christ. That'd be helpful. Well, that's what the Dead Sea Scrolls did. 
DSS stands for the Dead Sea Scrolls. They close the time gap from the original writings to the existing copies. Thankfully now, we have a treasure trove of, of copies and documents of the Old Testament that clearly predate Christ. And that's important. Not that we didn't have some, and we'll talk about that in a second, through the Septuagint. The Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the accuracy of the later copies, which was great. When you think about it, you've got copies that were made at least that we have existing in libraries and educational institutions and in museums, that now you say, well, can I trust these scribes that from the first century and before, I'm told they're so meticulous and religious about copying, can I be sure that they did a good job? Well, if I can predate those, those manuscripts, like the Leningrad manuscript, the Aleppo Codex, these, these manuscripts from the 9th, 10th, 11th century, if I can find something that shows up, say, a thousand years before that, before the time of Christ, and they match, that would be good. And that's exactly what happened. The Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the accuracy of later copies. And that was the trusted set of copies that we would go to, the Masoretic texts, as they were called. The Masoretes were known as those uh, people that had worked hard, full of scribes and others, but they put together a community of people that gave themselves to the work of uh, copying the manuscripts of the Old Testament and thankfully because of time and deteriorating materials that's as far back as we have these complete copies of the Old Testament but the good news is everyone kept translating their Bibles from those Masoretic family of texts and sure enough the Dead Sea Scrolls confirmed the connection between those so the Jewish scholars of the 6th to 10th century if we want to get the whole span because we have those in, in Cairo for instance uh, the Geniza codices all the way back to the 6th century. So, in other words, when you look at a manuscript, for instance, that's an ancient Hebrew manuscript, and you look at it from the Masoretic period, and you start having, uh, you know, vowel pointings and things put on the text to make them vocalize them, and the, and the accents and the, syllabic, uh, the, the, the syllable markings, all the things that you have that help them recite them in, in worship, and then you say, well, wait a minute, I'd sure like something older. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls, as we'll see and tell the story in a second, you start comparing those manuscripts of the 9th, 10th, even back to the 6th, but 9th and 10th century, which was the heart of the Masoretic text, and you look at what we found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which predate Christ, and you say, these are a perfect match. Let me illustrate it with a chart, which is helpful. The original autographs from 1445 to 430 B.C., you have the Masoretic text. Let's just put the heart of it, at least the full production of it, around 900 A.D. That's, the, that's the, the heydays ramping up. And say your ESV Bible that was translated in 2009. And, of course, the Septuagint we've got thrown in there. We always wondered, well, wait a minute. Should we trust the Greek version of the Old Testament? I mean, it is one translation away from the Hebrew. What do we do with that? It was done for a library under Alexander the Great, the Hellenization of the ancient world. Well, then you found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was great. In the Dead Sea Scroll discovery, you've got manuscripts going back to the 3rd, mostly the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., and the 1st century B.C., and when you see the Dead Sea Scrolls matching the Masoretic text, then you say, hey, we've vindicated everyone's long-standing reliability on what the Old Testament has always been translated by. So the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's talk about the history of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Give you the story here just a little bit. Qumran was a community 
of folks who weren't liking a lot of the liberalization of what was going on in Jerusalem. Uh, it was a sect of folks that were priestly. Some have theorized that maybe John the Baptist came out of this group. Uh, we have no proof of that. But they were called, they call themselves the community. But we call them the, you know, the, we call it now the, the Qumran community. They had a community there. They lived in the desert. They had all kinds of ablutions and ritual washings that they did. We found their washing fonts. We found all kinds of things, including business contracts and pottery and sundials and all kinds of artifacts when they discovered this in the Judean desert. To give you a sense of reference on your map, here's the Dead Sea. And the reason we call the Dead Sea Scrolls is because they were found right here, not far from the Dead Sea. Matter of fact, if you ever go to Israel with us, we always take a day to go to Qumran when we go and have you float in the Dead Sea. It's not far from Jerusalem. You can see there, Jerusalem is, you know, to the nine o'clock of this. And you take a ride down there to Qumran and you can see Bethlehem. That gives you some sense of it. But when you get there, you take a look at this very arid place and they'll always point out the caves here against the rocks. And sure enough, there are caves there. They're hard to get to. You have to climb into them. Well, what they did is they found in those caves, uh, and we'll look at all the information here in a second, these jars, these clay jars. And in these clay jars that they had, they had these little caps on them. They had scrolls that were inside of them. Now you can imagine, I'm talking to you about pre-Christian documents here of the Old Testament. I mean, this is, they're so ancient and old. A lot of them, once you opened them up or tried to unfurl them, you know, they fell into pieces. So this became a very difficult thing for the, uh, the archaeologists and the scholars to do. Some of them fell into fragments. Others of them did not. Others of them were functioning scrolls. Okay. And I thought, well, let's try and you hear a lot of talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Let's try and tell a little bit of the story. And I thought I would do that in a, in a bit of a quiz, okay? So let's have fun with this. Some of these things you may know off the top of your head. I want to ask you the question. When was the first, when were the first Dead Sea Scrolls found, okay? Is it 1835, 1902, 1947, or 1956? That was easy, especially when I show you the answer before I give you time to answer. 1947. It's a fascinating story about the finding of these manuscripts. The first scrolls were found, and of course they numbered them. These scholars are not very creative. Uh, Cave one, and it was discovered by a Bedouin shepherd. Some people have called that story into question, which I don't think you should. You research this enough. I think this is a legitimate story. Shepherd boy was out there. At least the story goes, he was looking for his lost sheep. He threw a rock into a cave to see if he could get his sheep to come out of there, thinking he was in there. And he hears a pot crash. He goes in and grabs this scroll, uh, he brings the scroll to the St. Mark's Monastery in downtown Jerusalem. And the monastery said, you know, he wanted to get some money for it, this Bedouin. And the monastery takes the scrolls that were given to them and says, well, let's find out what we got here. And the priest at the monastery thought, well, this seems like, it was 1947. Remember, there's a lot of political action, a lot of warfare going on in Jerusalem at the time. Uh, they said, well, let's find out with, if the Americans can help us with this. So they go to what's now called the Albright Institute in, in Jerusalem, where the scholars all do their work and people write their dissertations that come from the United States. And they came upon uh, the only guy that really was in the know there at the time who was working there was John Trevor. And John Trevor was taking pictures of the flora and fauna of the 
of uh, the ancient Near East for a dissertation he was doing, but he was smart enough, and this is credit to, I guess, theological education back in the you know, 1940s, but he knew enough by looking at the scroll that the priest came to the Albright Institute to show him and said, well, wait a minute, this is a really old script of old Hebrew script, and it doesn't look like anything that we have from the Masoretic period. It looks like it predates the Masoretic period, and so he started snapping pictures of it. Now, how providential is it of God to put a photographer there with all of his camera equipment and all of his tripods who's out there taking pictures of flowers who's there to be able to take pictures of the first Dead Sea Scrolls? It was a neat story. Anyway, lots of uh, caves are then discovered. They just number them in order. Cave 2 was found in February 1952. Cave 3 in March of 1952. And um, so 1947 is, a, is just a watershed date in archaeology, the most important archaeological find um, of the modern era, uh, finding the Ark by Indiana Jones notwithstanding. How many caves were discovered at Qumran with scrolls in them. Was it three? Was it five? Was it nine? Or was it 12? What is wrong with my PowerPoint? I bet you can guess if your eyes were open. There were 12 caves. They found 25 caves at Qumran, but only 12 of them contained scrolls. Now, the important and similar scrolls what were found during the same period of time in nearby places like Masada. You've been to Israel, you've been to Masada. Matter of fact, that's the whole point of why this library was hidden uh, because the Romans were about to sack Jerusalem. They were sweeping through Israel and the Jews didn't want to be subjected, of course. And if you know the story of Masada, they all went up there on Masada, were surrounded by the Romans and they held them off for some time, but they built the ramparts. They finally came up and took the community there in Masada and they end up killing themselves rather than taking prisoners. Well, as they're packing all their stuff up, communities like Qumran, they were hiding their valuables, including their libraries, and that's what they did. So we've got other places throughout the Judean desert of, of the Dead Sea area, and all of those are designated as Dead Sea Scrolls, even though they're not found at Qumran. Uh, so, but they're nearby. They're not far. They're all in the same basic place. Let's see if I can actually have a real question for you to answer without the answer given to you. What languages were the scrolls written in? Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek, or all of the above? What do you guess? Finally, you get to guess something. You're not going to commit, some of you. All the above. Now, a majority of them, of course, were in Hebrew because this is a group of Jewish people with their library. And by the way, don't think about a library as so one-dimensional. If you were to, if you were to have my library and we were about to be persecuted and I've got this great theological library, not great, and mine's good, I guess. I got a good theological library and I'm going to like, well, I'm not going to give it up and, and we're being persecuted. I'm going to bury it somewhere and, and we all work together to bury my library. Think about my library. You don't know my library. Think about the average pastor's library that's got a decent library. I got books that are not only written in 2019. Matter of fact, few of my books are written in 2019. Most of them are written in, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. I've got books in my library that are 200 years old, right? I even got a couple of things hanging on the wall that are 400 years old. Now think about that. If you 
put them all in a storage closet and dumped them in the you know, the, the, in some hole and covered them with dirt for 2,000 years, you don't go and say, well, I guess they're all from the 21st century. They're not. And so it was with the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, the, the ancient language of that community, of course, was Hebrew. But there was Aramaic as well, which is, of course, a derivative, or maybe not, of course. It's a derivative. It's a first cousin of Hebrew. looks a lot like Hebrew. It's just a bit different. Both parts of Esther and Daniel were written in Aramaic, and a lot of the language, Palestinian Aramaic, was spoken in the time of the first century BC. And so we have some things that are written in Aramaic, contracts, books, scrolls, that is. And there are a few actual manuscripts in Greek. Now, the Hellenization of the ancient world, those, you know, I don't want to call them zealots, because there's a group of people called zealots that are politicians, political zealots, but the hardcore Jewish people, of course, I mean, they weren't going to have a library full of Greek things. Well, I got a library that's full of various languages, but most of the things in my library are in English. And so it was for them, most of their scrolls were in Hebrew. Some Greek and even some Septuagint uh, copies of the Old Testament in Caves 4 and 7. All right. Were all the manuscripts found, were they all biblical manuscripts? The answer is no, because I've already shown you the answer, plus I've already said it several times, right? Lots of documents other than biblical documents, documents including commentaries, um, documents relating to community life, a lot of them actually, about a quarter of them, probably 20, 20 to 25% about how they're supposed to function in the community uh, at, at Qumran. Those are the more recent writings in the library. All right, how many books of the Old Testament were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls? Was it 15 of the 39, 29 of the 39, 38 of the 39, or 39 of the 39? 38 of the 39. Only Esther was not definitively represented by the discovery, and I've added the word definitively to this phrase because I'll tell you in a minute. I guess I'll speculate, as people will speculate in their papers and documents, about why Esther wasn't in the, uh, at least the salvageable scrolls of Qumran. Some say, well, it's only because it wasn't salvaged. It's a smaller book and it just didn't survive. Some say, well, it was a male community and, you know, they didn't like it because it was about a woman. That's absurd, uh, of course, because we found Ruth there. Um, Probably one of the more popular stories you've heard is it didn't mention God's name. Right? There's no mention of God's name in the book of Esther. And since they're such hardcore religious folks, they said, well, maybe that's why. The truth is we don't know why. And as a matter of fact, I'm more inclined to believe some of the most recent research that Esther's fragments are there. And you've got to understand what a massive treasure trove of documents we have. And so many of them are in such bad shape, they still haven't been unfurled. Some of them are like petrified into scrolls, and they sit there and work very slowly to piece them apart. And once they realize what a valuable archaeological find this was, the most important archaeological find of the modern era, I mean, some of it just didn't, everything slowed, every, it slowed everything down when they realized the value of it. So uh, there are articles out there you can read about matching fragments to the book of Esther and I, I tend to think that it is there. Um, it would be like my library and half of it being destroyed. It, it's there. It may not be on the top of their list for preaching and writing commentaries, but anyway, 
we can definitively say we have 38 of the 39 books of the Old Testament. Are there any New Testament books found among the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, that's not funny because if you think about it, I said they were backed up against the wall sweeping through Israel when? Right? 68 AD because they were going to destroy the temple in 70 AD. So this, they had time. I know that the New Testament was written between 45 and 95, but you've got, you got 20 years there between the two, right? 45 to 65. So 23 years. Um, well, some suggest, and there's lots of papers that have been written on this, that in Cave 7 in particular, that there are fragments, they say, of Mark and Acts, Romans, 1 Timothy, James, and 2 Peter. Um, wow, I don't know why I repeated those books. But six books. And if you look carefully at it, I mean, these are like fragmentary. As a matter of fact, one of them is one that we just quoted, at least a part of a verse in 1 Timothy chapter 3.16 regarding the God-breathed nature of the Old Testament. Um, Acts, and, and Acts is one verse, and just a part of one verse. Acts 28.38. Second uh, Peter is Second Peter chapter 1 verse 15. And again, you can see with all of the non-biblical manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts you have, you could find a word order of two words that could match Second Peter, Acts, a verse in Mark. So it's so fragmentary that a lot of people just say, I mean, it, it can't even be definitively said. But there is, there are papers written that they can match these things up, which you could probably take a piece out of the newspaper tear a little section off, and if you just had three or four words there in two lines, you could probably somewhere, if you worked hard enough, find something in the New Testament that maybe, perhaps, lined up. And that's what they've done with at least what they've discovered from some fragments in Cave 7. Now, when the Dead Sea Scrolls went public, which I'm glad that they did, and I remember when it happened, it all started here at Claremont College in Southern California, where... Finally, they were like, let's just produce this because we were starting to enter the, you know, internet age and computer age. And, and they were like, we just, we're not going to hold this. There's no conspiracy here. Well, everyone was writing books between 1947 and the time that these scrolls were all made public. All the published scrolls that were actually codified and, and, and put forth and that they had cataloged. During that time, people wrote a lot of books. And those books were written, sensational books about there's a new Jesus and the Jesus of, of Qumran and the Jesus of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can still find those books, you know, looking online and hopefully they're selling for two cents on Amazon Marketplace or they're not being sold at all because they're all absurd and they're ridiculous. There's no data about Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, just not. Even if you say, well, Mark, because the Mark passage is Mark 4.28, maybe there's a verse from Mark. It could be, but we don't have a whole new Jesus of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is exactly the title of some of the books. You can look them up, trying to tell us that the New Testament Jesus is ridiculous. Though all the books were fragmentary, which book was the most complete? Do you think Genesis, Isaiah, Psalms, or Jeremiah? Isaiah. All 66 chapters were preserved in one scroll. That was the amazing thing. Though some of the pages were missing um, and the bot- of the, in the bottom lines. Matter of fact, you'll see some pictures. I think I put a couple up in a second. On one scroll. We call it the Great Isaiah Scroll. And they have abbreviations for all this. They always put a number before the Dead Sea Scroll designation. So it's one 
uh, Q, which stands for Qumran, and ISA, which is Isaiah uh, 1A. That's the designation for the great Isaiah scroll. And it's an amazing thing. That was the one that Mark Trevor, or John Trevor rather, was taking photos of on the day it came from St. Mark's Monastery. Which, by the way, those guys from St. Mark's Monastery lied to the American scholars. They said, well, we've had this scroll in our library here in the monastery for a long time, but we just want, we thought we'd pull it out and see if you could tell us anything about it when, when they actually really got it from the, from the Bedouin. Anyway, this completely refuted liberal views of the assembly of Isaiah. Of course, they were saying Isaiah was a later work, probably wasn't even put together until the ninth or 10th century. And it was a lot of different, you know, editors and different writers. And it was all put together by redactors. And it was an absurd theory, right? Because, I mean, if you have a high view of scripture and you read what Jesus says about the Bible, you wouldn't believe it. And yet people were believing it and teaching it. And it was catching on in liberal circles in Europe in particular. And now in 1947, we unfurl the first scroll and you have the great Isaiah scroll. There, by the way, is a picture of John Trevor taking pictures of the scroll. It's a fascinating story, which, by the way, there is a book called The Untold Story of Qumran, which I wish he hadn't named it that because that sounds like some of the conspiratorial books that were written at the time where he tells the story of being there and having them come and taking the photos. It's fascinating. And even to look at him there with his hand touching the scroll, it's just like with something we would never allow today. And if you go to Jerusalem, you got to go to the Shrine of the Book um, Museum, which if you look at this, this is what you see from the outside. It's all underground, but this is the part that sticks out of the ground, and it's in the shape of one of the lids of the jars of the Qumran jars. And if you go inside, and the real one I don't think is on display here anymore. Perhaps it is, but this could be a representation. I have to figure that one out and call and ask and look it up. But... This is the either the original or the facsimile of the great Isaiah scroll, and I'm sorry I don't know which is which, but great, fascinating time to go there. You'll be overwhelmed like most museums in, in an hour or two, and you probably get data overload, but you got to go in to that. It's where it's not, it's in the same compound where the uh, city model is if you've been to Israel, or if you're going to go there. We're going to take another trip, Pastor Pete and some other pastors. We were talking about when we were going to plan that next one. But uh, if you haven't been to Israel, this is a good stop on our tour. Of which book were the most copies found? Do you think it was Genesis? Do you think it was Isaiah? Do you think it was the Psalms? Or do you think it was Jeremiah? Which book had more copies of it, do you think? If you think logically, you can figure this one out. You'd think the hymn book, right? Because they would use that for worship. There are more copies of the Psalms than any other book. By far, they had more copies of the Psalms than any other book. And it's interesting because there are the Psalms, and in some of those manuscripts, there are three extra Psalms found, which is fascinating. The most famous and most interesting is Psalm 151. And it's there as an interesting, provocative find in the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the Masoretic text doesn't have it, and the Masoretic text was always the basis for all the English translations or every other translation of the Bible, and yet the Dead Sea Scrolls from the 3rd century B.C. had Psalm 151. So that was fascinating that they found Psalm 51 in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, what is it? It's a very simple, very short psalm. I was young among my brothers, the youngest in my father's house. I tended my father's sheep. My hands formed a musical instrument. My fingers played the psaltery. Who shall tell 
Um, and who shall tell my Lord for the Lord himself? He himself heard. He sent forth his angel or his messenger and took me from my father's sheep. That's Samuel, of course. He anointed me with oil of his anointing. My brothers were handsome and tall, but the Lord did not take pleasure in them. I went forth to meet the Philistine. He cursed me by his idols. I drew, but I drew his own sword and beheaded him and removed the reproach from the children of Israel. Seven verses, Psalm 151, provocative and interesting because that Psalm is found in the Septuagint, not in the Masoretic text, but it is found. That's probably, it's like the longer ending of Mark, if you know anything about textual criticism or the story of the woman caught in adultery in the book, in the gospel of John. Here's one passage that kind of sticks out as a major variant or difference between uh, manuscripts. Anyway, fascinating for what it's worth. All right. New Testament, Dead Sea Scrolls. That's very helpful. Now that's a lot of stuff, but if you sit there at the water cooler tomorrow and someone says to you the Old Testament, wow, you can't trust that. Well, it's interesting that what we have in the Old Testament translating into our English Bibles today, mostly based on the Masoretic text, and of course there's small variations within the Masoretic text, but very small, you say, well, that hasn't developed over time or evolved over time because I can pick up the Dead Sea Scrolls now and see them matching. Are there some differences? Minor differences. The Isaiah scroll is the fascinating one because it was the most complete. It was the first one pulled out and it is a copy with very few variants at all and they are very minor. They're like the kinds of stroke of the pen mistakes you would find in any well-preserved manuscript. New Testament is a different story. As I said, you've got an explosion of New Testament copies. Manuscripts characteristically emerge geographically. In other words, copies start to take on their own variation in certain geographical areas. Okay, think about that now. Follow me. If you're going to say you had a manuscript that, that didn't have Psalm 151, it didn't have Psalm 151, and it got isolated geographically and it was copied in all those communities and all those cities and all those areas and all those churches, let's say, right? you would start to see that all of them matched the variation matched. This one didn't have Psalm 151, but over here in this area it did. And when those got copied, it was there. Now that's the biggest variation of the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, you've got a few things. Usually they're small. Usually they're one word, inverted words. This one says Jesus Christ. That one says Christ Jesus. Great. But when you see that variation, it starts to take its own geographical characteristic and all of those manuscripts related to that geographically, they match. Now we're going to study, I was just working on Acts chapter 2 for you in the series that we're going to be preaching, but there's a great section there about those who had come for Pentecost, the celebration of the feast, and it says the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia, right, it's Babylon, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the other parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Think about that list. They are coming from everywhere. And 3,000 people get saved right out of the gate. So immediately we have these people taking the gospel back. And the need for scripture in all those places is there. So as the scripture starts to be written within a couple of decades, right? You have now, within a decade and a half, you now have people saying, well, I want to copy that. I want to copy James. I want to copy Galatians. And so we start to see these, these scriptures go out everywhere into various places. And we have four basic text families. And we call them Caesarean, Alexandrian, Byzantine, and Western. And if you lay a map underneath it, it looks like this. Alexandria, of course, is 
in the northern part of the continent of Africa. And it's, you know, surrounding the Nile River. It's that the Egyptian Nile Delta. Caesarea, it's the northern coastal port of Israel, and it was a key city and a key place and, and, and you know, launching pad to the, to the, um, to the west. The Byzantine Empire is what was called, and we always call it from the platform in the ancient world, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And then you have the Western text, way out west, Spain, Italy, Greece. Greece stands in the middle, of course, of all that. So those manuscript areas start to produce variations, and when there's a small mistake in the copying... Right? They start to take on their own characteristics. And you start to see groupings of variant readings from those places. All right. What you've got is a loss of our earliest copies, of course. Manuscripts, though, don't deteriorate evenly. I want you to think about this now. You've got climate involved. Climate is involved, for one, if you start thinking about coastal areas, coastal areas like Caesarea, even if you want to think about the Byzantine Empire compared to the Alexandrian deserts of northern Africa, you've got, you've got a difference there. You start thinking of the geography, you start to see these deteriorate. When does that piece of papyrus wear out? Well, it wears out faster in a more humid climate and less fast in an arid climate. So think of it this way. You've got the autographs, the originals. You've got Caesarean text being copied, Alexandrian text, Byzantine text, Western text, and they all start to have their own characteristics of distinctive variants. They're very small, but they start to copy those. Now, they start to wear out. Think about the Alexandrian family of texts in a dry, humid culture. Right? It's like why every good librarian wants to keep the library nice and you know at the right humidity, low humidity, to keep that paper, even in modern books, in shape. But it's going to go away faster in other climates. So if you take a snapshot from the 21st century, so what do we have existing? You're going to see copies deteriorating. I mean, none of us have originals, but some of them have more ancient manuscripts, old manuscripts, old copies than other areas. Okay. The other thing you've got to keep in mind, we'll get back to that graphic, is other languages dominating those regions. Think about it. There's only one region that continues to need Greek manuscripts. And the only region that needs the only region that continues to need Greek manuscripts is the one region that's continuing to speak Greek, right? Think of our regions again. Well, which of these historians is continuing to speak Greek? Well, it's not Alexandria. It's not Caesarea. Caesarea is starting to and has already spoken Syriac or Peshitta, we call it, which we have plenty of Old Testament manuscripts or, or New Testament manuscripts rather copied into Syriac, ancient Syriac. You've got Coptic is the language of Egypt, and we have lots of Coptic manuscripts because people started to need the scripture. If you don't have a scholar who knows the Greek language or that Greek language ceases to be such a common language in the marketplace, well, we need the language of the people, so we've got Coptic. And of course, out west, they started speaking Latin. They needed the Bible in Latin. Matter of fact, they produced a grand copy of the Old Testament and New Testament in Latin. We call it the Vulgate. And they call it the Vulgate because it was the vulgar language, which meant it was the common language of the people. I know vulgar means something else to us today. So 
We need manuscripts in Coptic, Syriac, Latin, in all these places, but the Byzantine Empire continues to speak Greek because that's their language. And it continues on. For centuries, it continues on. So back to our chart. You've got all these manuscripts that start to go away. But you need more Greek manuscripts in the Byzantine Empire, and they need to continue to have them be copied because that's the language they speak. But Caesarea, Syriac, in Egypt, they need Coptic. In the Western nations, they need Latin. So now you have, and there's more, there's certainly more languages, ancient languages that the New Testament was translated into, but here you have these families of texts. And if you take a snapshot of what we have, you have them dating back, if you're going to go to the left of this chart, back in time. We don't have any original manuscripts, but here's what you have. And this is a graphical representation, an iconic representation of it. So there's your families of text. Any studying you do about, do we have the originals? No. Do you have variants between the manuscripts? Yes. They group together in Western Byzantine, Caesarean, Alexander. Which one has the most Greek manuscripts? Well, the Byzantine, but most of the Byzantine are older. So let's observe some characteristics in text families. Just real quickly, I know this is a lot. You can go back and stream it again. Okay, Alexandrian text, as you saw graphically on the screen, they are the oldest discovered copies that we have. Matter of fact, they go back the, the longest, and you can see why. Well, because they, it was in an arid, arid place. Um, the characteristic of that is not only that we have a lot of old manuscripts from the Alexandrian text family, but we have a lot of, we, we have a, the lack of, the absence of obvious additions and conflations. And by that I mean is when you have a sentence that seems like it needs to be smoothed out or there could be a grammatical way to state this that might be clearer or there's a geographical representation of a city and we need to know where that city is and and we we just don't have any of that. As a general rule in the Alexandrian text families, you don't have those miscellaneous details added. We don't have readings conflated, combining readings. If you have Jesus in one passage and it says Jesus did this and in that passage it says Christ did this, we don't see the conflation of Christ Jesus did this. You have one or the other. So we have shorter readings, we have more concise readings, we have less conflations and less additions. And by additions, I mean sometimes we have helpful intended errors and a lot of times we have unintended errors. All right. Uh, Caesarean. These are the least unique. Okay? Mostly the Gospels and Acts. Matter of fact, they have very little impact on the others. Origen did something called the Hexapla of his polyglot, a multiple language Bible. And uh, a lot from that that's of interest, particularly in the Gospel and Acts, when you have... Matter of fact, some people think Caesarean manuscript family is so non-unique that it shouldn't even be considered a text family. But it's still traditionally taught as a unique group of variant readings. And again, all of these are very, very small. The Western text. More harmonizations and some paraphrasing. When there comes a sentence that could be smoothed out, it's smoothed out. It's made simpler to understand. If there's two passages that seem to struggle with one another in terms of the Gospels, for instance, in Luke and Mark, let's say, and they say, well, I don't know, this seems hard to figure out. It looks like this one's saying this and that one's saying that. You'll see in the Western text, 
you know, more attempts to say, well, maybe let's just put these together and let's conflate them or let's try and make them work together or let's drop the way that's said because that may be misleading and put it like this because it seems to match Mark better than it does, you know, if you left it. The Byzantine text family. This is by far, and I guess you have to read these texts for yourself. And I got plenty of copies. If you want to come, first you have to learn Greek, I guess, but then come read them. But these are the most polished readings. They're the smoothest readings. They are the most conflated readings. They are always the longest readings. And they're the kinds of polished, longer, conflated readings that you'll never find quoted among the early preachers of the New Testament. We have so many examples, volumes of examples of preachers in the second, third, fourth century. And guess what they're not quoting? If you've got a harmonization or a conflation or an extended reading of some verse in, let's say, Romans chapter four, you don't see that quoted the way that it's quoted there or the way it's codified there in the Byzantine text family. If you know anything about the King James controversy, because Erasmus at Cambridge put together the first technical, what we call a um, critical edition of the New Testament, and it was the basis for the King James Bible. It was mostly based on late Byzantine manuscripts. And because of that, when new translations were made, looking at all the manuscripts and recognizing the Byzantine readings weren't always the best readings, right? Then you have this big controversy like people are trying to take things out of the Bible. That's a whole nother sermon. And I preached on that, taught on that before. We don't have time to get into that other than to say they're wrong. And I'm sure I'll get some that'll write me who've seen this and say, oh no, we're right. I guess bring it on. We'll, 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 I mean, I've dealt with people in our church that have sadly been misled by those King James only folks. King James is a fine translation. It did great. It was wonderful. It, it, it was chain, life-changing. It was great English for the day, but it's not a superior uh, text family because it's a Byzantine text family. And they're going to call it, they also call it the majority text. Why? Because there's more Greek manuscripts in the Byzantine text family. Great. Great. Of course it's the majority of texts because it's the one place that still needed Greek manuscripts. That made sense. All right, number five, textual criticism. Let's define then what we're doing in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. We got to do a lot of it in the New Testament because we have a lot of manuscripts to compare and a lot of old manuscripts to compare. And we have a lot of differences now that start to show up. And they're all minor. I say a lot, but a lot because it's not none. I mean, there's, there's a lot of differences, but they're not major significant differences. Rarely are they meaning differences. But I have a lot of differences between Byzantine, Caesarean, Alexandrian, and Western families of texts. But the definition of textual criticism is the work of comparing and evaluating. It's one thing that would be worth writing down right here. The work of comparing and evaluating ancient copies of the Bible. We have to do it in the Old Testament and we have to do it in the New Testament. We've got to do a lot more of it in the New Testament because we have a lot more manuscripts and a lot more ancient manuscripts. The work of comparing and evaluating ancient copies of the Bible to determine the most accurate reading of the original wording. The work of comparing and evaluating ancient copies of the Bible to determine the most accurate reading of the original wording. We have to reconstruct what was originally written. And if you're like, <gasps> right? If your coworker is breathing all the air in out of the room because you admit this, see, every single thing they've ever learned about history, you had to have textual criticism done to it. Because if you're going to read Homer, which probably has the most manuscript evidence Second 
only to the Bible, which is exponentially better attested than anything Homer ever wrote, you're still doing a ton of textual criticism to figure out what did Homer actually write? What did the Gallic Wars actually say? What did Tacitus actually say? I know he's a Rome, uh, Latin, you know, Roman historian, but what, what did he say? Well, we don't know what he wrote unless we do textual criticism. And what is that? We compare and evaluate ancient copies of whatever the text is to determine the most accurate reading of the original wording. We have every reason for confidence in this work. Why? Because again, we have so many very old copies. I know that's a childish way to say it. We have so many and very old copies. And the other thing is there's complete transparency in the field. This field of study of textual criticism is completely transparent. The biggest controversy we had was how long it took for them, and this was not a New Testament scholarship thing, but for them to finally release the Dead Sea Scrolls to the public to review them, which today you can look at everything that's out there. But why they take so long? And I was mad that they wouldn't release them for a long time. I mean, they were so careful because it was the most important um, archaeological find of the modern era. And so what happens? Well, people start to think there's conspiracy. It's like if you want to see the golden plates of Joseph Smith, which of course they say aren't available, right? We're not going to, we're going to show you any of that. Why? Because it's a lie. Well, New Testament textual criticism is a transparent field. And I'm not trying to boast of this. I'm just trying to say how relatively easy it is for you to do this work. At least your pastor has done some of this work firsthand. This is Yale University, New Haven, Connecticut. I went there doing my master's work and filled out an application as a student. And I was not matriculating through Yale, but I went there and went to their library of antiquities and said, I have a research reason to look at ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. So I went and had them pull up for me and I had to put on some white gloves, the Papyrus 49. This is a late 200s copy of of uh, Ephesians 4.32 through 5.13. We call it P49, Papyrus 49. This document right here that's on the screen that you can find digitized anywhere on the internet, I held it in my my white glove clad fingers in, in, in between two little pieces of glass. And sadly, it had duct tape around the edge of it because, and they apologized when the librarian of antiquity said, well, here, you know, we'll let you you know, review this for your work, but um, sorry about the duct tape. We're working on kind of updating all this. On that same trip, by the way, I went to see the uh, Constitution of the United States, which wasn't duct taped around the edges, which I thought was interesting, this document that wasn't relatively that old, you know, in this temperature control and oxygen, helium, glass in case with, you know, security guards. And then they gave me, a dopey master student, you know, a copy of of a third century text of the New Testament. I saw P49 and P50 there as well, which is a copy of Acts 8 and Acts 10. Um, I just, I say that for the sake of how transparent this work is. I can take my Greek New Testament. I can take an ancient copy from the second century or the third century in this case, and I can compare those two to see if there's some kind of conspiracy going on. Transparent field. I love that. The popular conspiracies are nonsense is all I'm trying to say. And I want to take a minute to talk about how nonsensical they are. The Da Vinci Code, and the only reason I keep bringing this up is because it has really taken root in the kind of pseudo-scholarship of community colleges and universities today. So let me review some of this, okay? 
Here's one example as it relates to the reliability of the Bible that is absolutely absurd. That most people today, if they know anything about the Bible, and I say anything, they don't know much, they say they, they believe this theory. Okay. Okay, and in the movie, because of the movie, but the book, of course, I read very carefully. They said the original followers of Jesus, who they say are the Gnostics, right? That's who they identify as the original followers of Jesus. They said that Jesus was a married man with children. He worshipped a goddess, so he was a feministic rabbi, and he was 100% human. Okay, that's the claim of the book. If you haven't read the book, congratulations. I, I prefer you not read it, but they claim everything in the book, though it's a historical fiction, is true. Okay, so this is who they say Jesus is. And they go to, which you can clearly look up on the internet, hey, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, and they say, you can trust these. These are the books that give us the accurate representation of Jesus. Now, I bet around the water cooler, there's some smart guy, quote unquote, Discovery Channel watching guy who says he knows about the Bible better than you do. And he's going to point to these kinds of things and say, well, these are the real deal because you know what? I don't know. I heard it from a professor when I was in college. Can't trust the Bible, but you can trust those documents. Okay. Why? Because they say things like this in the book, which they claim is historically accurate, which is nothing but nonsense. And I'll show you why. Page 231. The Bible as we know it today is, was collated by the pagan Roman emperor Constantine the Great. That's the claim of the book. Constantine commissioned and financed a new Bible because the old Bible, Gospel of Thomas, you know, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Gospel of Philip, that was the real Bible. He financed the new Bible, fourth century by the way, and he omitted the Gospels that were true, that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. So he was the one responsible for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And everything else was built on that. And it was done on the fourth century. He commissioned it. He financed it. And remember what he says in the book, on the back cover, everything in this book, all the descriptions of the documents in this novel are true. And so people eating their hot pockets, you know, sitting there between video games, read this book and say, well, this must be the truth, right? And they are out there pontificating on their way to hell, mind you, telling you you're a fool to believe in the Bible because really it was about a fourth century Constantinian conspiracy. Well, what's the deal with Constantine? Okay, here's the claim. Jesus, completely human, was written about in Philip, Mary Magdalene, Thomas, and all the rest. Constantine comes along in 325 AD in the fourth century. He smashes those documents representing the true Christ and gives us a Bible that he finances that makes him godlike and creates this masculinized uh, non-feminized, this he-man, woman-haters Bible that was created. So before Constantine, you had the real Jesus. He's just a human rabbi. That's all he was. He shouldn't threaten you at all. Then you got the phony Jesus that Constantine financed, and that's the savior from heaven who came to save you from your sins, and all the stuff you do that's sinful is wrong, and you're in trouble with God for that. That's all coming from Constantine, who wanted to consolidate power. Okay? Now, let's think about this. Here's the claim. The Bible, as you know it today, was collated by the pagan emperor, Constantine the Great. And so, Sophie says to Teabing, I thought Constantine was a Christian, Sophie said. Hardly, Teabing scoffed. He was a lifelong pagan who was baptized on his deathbed too weak to protest. Okay, I just want you to think about Roman, histo- uh, Roman emperor, Nero, Domocletian, uh, Aurelius, Marcus Aurelius, uh, Diocletian, Domitian and Diocletian. These guys 
hated Christianity. I had a gal at the door say to me this weekend, my professor at UCI is telling me in my Bible for literature class, by the way, can you not send your kids to the university and have them take the Bible as literature class? You're going to get anti-God, anti-Christian people jamming things down your kid's throat, acting like they're scholars and leading them down the wrong path. So here's this gal, right? Good-hearted. At least she comes to her pastor and says, he... He tells me that the Christians wrote the history about the Roman emperors persecuting the Christians and it was all fabricated. Okay? This is exactly out of the playbook of these kinds of people. You know what? You know who wrote about the persecution of Christians? Romans wrote about the persecution of Christians. About their emperors like Nero in 64 or 68, the fire. Uh, 64 was the fire. Persecuting Christians. Which of course she pontificated down the road because no one's going to challenge her. And say, well, that was all made up by the Christians. Because all of this, I'll bet if you pushed her, she's going to say the same thing that came from a stupid book uh, that's nothing other than, than trite. Okay, so you got all these anti-Christian predecessors. Well, Constantine claims a conversion, a profound conversion in 312 AD. He's outnumbered at a battle for the Milvian Bridge, which is a critical battle that he was fighting. Here's what Constantine said. Okay, now think about this. He converted to Christ. Here's kind of a picture of his roadmap. In 312, he creates now what we call the Edict of Milan. It is the edict that frees Christians from being an illegal sect and legalizes Christianity. He mints coins now in 315, the one who's supposed to be a pagan till his death and consolidating power with the new Bible he's writing, minted coins with the chi row. That's chi, that looks like a P. Um, chi is the X, and the P looks like a row. Those are the first two letters in Greek of Christ's name, Christos. Um, okay? He takes laws regarding slaves, the poor, tax relief, church property, all the things that you would expect him to do if he was following the Bible. Then he makes Sunday a public holiday so that people don't have to work or do work under conscription on the weekend. These are just a couple of the highlights. Here's his own words. He says, For while the people of God, whose fellow servant I am, are thus divided amongst themselves by an unreasonable and pernicious spirit of contention. Okay, because there was a battle going on. I'm about to tell you about it, doctrinally. How is it possible that I shall be able to maintain tranquility of mind? I can't sleep at night because Christian scholars are debating one another. Okay, these are not the words. I mean, I bring on the professors, right, who want to say otherwise. They, they got gullible students that, that drink this stuff in, okay? Now, I know you can say a lot of things about Constantine not being a not-so-great Christian, and we've had classes on Sunday morning about the Roman Empire and Constantine, but I'm telling you, this does not sound like a pagan uh, trying to parlay Christianity. And there's a lot more we can say. Well, they all point in the books and the people today around the water cooler are going to say the Council of Nicaea, that's when they financed this new Bible. And that's where you got all this stuff that is really developed and evolved that had nothing to do with what was originally written. 325 was when the Council of Nicaea took place. Okay. Constantine, as he just stated in that little testimonial brief I gave you, he wanted unity in the kingdom among his, the Christians, the Christians that he respected. So he focused on a theological hot topic of the fourth century, and he wanted to bring unity to the church, okay? It had zero to do with the Bible. It had nothing to do with Scripture. It had zero to do with the Gospels. It had nothing to do with anything in writing regarding what they considered to be sacred Scripture. Zero, okay? Nicene Council, according to the Da Vinci Code, met by order of the pagan emperor seeking to consolidate power and masculinize the world to stamp out the real story of Jesus, a married guy, God is worshiping, 100% human rabbi, right? And he wanted to invent the son of God myth, okay? And so he created a new Bible. That's the claim. And I think people still today, and if I, I wouldn't be wasting my breath on this if it weren't for the fact I still hear this in my evangelism from people, okay? 
What's the fact? Here's the fact. There was a troublemaking pastor named Arius of Alexandria. He had a great library and arid culture and, and climate, but he was a troublemaker. What did he say? Well, he said Jesus was God, but his divinity was similar to the Father's and not the same as the Father's. And to take it even further, because he wasn't, he wasn't the same as the Father in terms of his divinity, right? Then there was a time when he did not exist. Well, you can think that made a lot of pastors really mad, and it did. So the council met by Constantine's allowance to say, here, can you guys solve this problem? And the council was not trying to solve if Jesus was God, but how in the world he was God. How does that work? How is God the Son actually God? Is he kind of like the Father or is he exactly like the Father? Is he similar to the Father or is he the same as the Father in terms of his divinity, his authority as God? So the council concluded that Arius' view was unbiblical. Okay? Out of the approximately 300 pastors that came to meet on this, all the top leaders of the church, only two voted for Arius' view. So this was not a big division. This had nothing to do with the Bible. It had everything to do with how do you explain the divinity of Christ? That's what it was about. So the only thing that, that Teabing had right, that, that Dan Brown has right in his book and puts in the mouth of Teabing, was it had something to do with clarifying the divinity of Christ. It didn't make it up at all. Matter of fact, the only interesting thing about it that you might want to know is Nicholas of Myra, the pastor there, whose characters Santa Claus came from, uh, is known for disputing with Arius so vehemently that at least the story's told that he hit him. Uh, so this is a picture of your Santa Claus, St. Nick, hitting <laughs> Arius the heretic. I mean, there's a lot of paintings of this. Here's another one, slapping him in the face. Or the one I put on my Christmas cards here, Merry Christmas from St. Nick, of St. Nicholas hitting hitting Arius. All right. Now compare the claim of the Da Vinci Code. Okay. Sophie says regarding the Council of Nicaea. Now hold on. You're saying Jesus' divinity was a result of a vote? Yes, it was. A relatively close vote at that. Now remember, he says everything about the historical circumstances are real. Okay. I defy anyone to look at any historical document that thinks that anything was close about Nicaea regarding what the topic was. And the topic had nothing to do with the Bible. Right. It certainly wasn't a vote that was close. Uh, it's insane. Nevertheless, establishing the Christ divinity was critical to the further unification of the Roman Empire. I've given you Constantine in his own words. Right? He's a new Christian in a place of power. It's a very awkward thing for leaders to be trying to get the leaders of the church that he's trying to look up to to see if they could work out their differences because that was the topic of the day. Well, the leaders got together and they voted in a landslide vote to say, no, we don't recognize Arius' view. There was not a time when Christ was not. And his divinity is the same as the Father's, not similar to the Father. So Nicaea 325. I just want to say, regarding Christ, there's no change. I can go back to Ignatius of 107, who writes things like this. Jesus Christ was truly crucified, died in the sight of the beings of heaven and on earth in the underworld, and was also truly raised from the dead, which of course... Da Vinci Code and the modern thinks that all that stuff about rising from the dead was post-Nicaea and had to do with Constantine. The profession of Smyrna, 180. We know this. The son, suffering as he suffered, dying as he died, risen on the third day, abiding at the right hand of the father, and coming to judge the living and the dead, long before 325. The Ballet's confession. Here's the wording of that confession. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, and his only begotten son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Creed of Hippolytus. Jesus, the Son of God, who was begotten of the Holy Spirit from the Virgin Mary, was crucified under Pontius Pilate and died and rose on the third day. All these things, by the way, the supernatural Christ who rose from the dead, all that was supposed to be an invention of Constantine to try and masculinize the 
empire and create a Bible. So the Nicene Creed was no different. Jesus Christ, Son of God, begotten of the Father, as only begotten, from the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, true God of God, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence of the Father through whom all things came into being. Okay? That's the, that's the statement from the Council of Nicaea. Okay? First to third century theologians, Arrhenius, Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria. I could go on and on and on. As a matter of fact, if you want to read about them, it's all public domain. It's out there. We've got the books printed in our CBI library. They're all in boxes right now, but they're going to be out on the shelves. And you can read volume after volume after volume of preachers before Nicaea. These are called the, the anti-Nicaean fathers. Not against Nicaea. They are just predating Nicaea. And guess what? They say the same thing. The anti-Nicaean Christian volumes. And guess what? The post-Nicaean Christian writings and preachers. They all say the same thing. Constantine was just a emperor, happened to put his trust in Christ, and he ends up calling together a committee of pastors who affirms the thing that has always been affirmed, that Christ is the Son of God, God in human form, all the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. And guess what's on both sides of the Council of Nicaea? The same New Testament that they're quoting time and time and time again. So, Ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus, all 27 books of the Bible, of the New Testament written in 45 to 95. You've got all these Christian leaders from 100 on forward, all the extant copies of the New Testament. We can pull up, not all of them, but many of them, most of them. We've got examples of going all the way back to the John Rylands papyrus of 117 AD. And you start to see the rise of something called Gnosticism from 125 forward. And you have things like the Gospel of Thomas, which was the earliest Gnostic writing written in 150. Irenaeus starts to immediately respond to that within 24 years and writes against Gnosticism. Okay, You have other Gnostic books and rebuttals beginning to be written by the 3rd century through the 5th century. You have all this Gnosticism that is being rebutted time and time again. The Gnostics were a group of most of them from the 3rd, 4th, 5th century. They were not eyewitnesses of the life of Christ. They were falsely ascribing books to people that did not write them. Thomas did not write it. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, Mary Magdalene did not write it. These things were written centuries or decades rather after, um, not centuries, I'm not decades, centuries after the facts. Gnostic Gospels were inconsistent with the Old Testament and the New Testament and very few Gnostic texts claim to even be Gospels. All right. Popular conspiracies are nonsense. The Da Vinci Code is nonsense. Our Bible has been translated once. That's an important thing for me to say. Textual criticism is the work of figuring out what was written in the Old Testament, Hebrew, the New Testament, Greek, and then it's translated into your Bible, whether you have a New American Standard, whether you have an English Standard Version. Yes, you have different styles of being able to present those things, but stop having anyone tell you the Bible's been translated dozens of times. It has been translated one time, and it'd be good for you to learn Hebrew and Greek. Then you can look at actually what we have in the original languages of a good, what we call critical edition of the Old Testament and New Testament. So the Bible's been translated once. We have a reliable record of what the biblical authors wrote. That's the bottom line of what I'm trying to say tonight. Let's pray. God, help us with these accusations as to why we have this hope within us that the word of God is the word of God. But before we even get to that, I suppose we just need to say, is this document that we have, that we read, that we meditate on, that we have our kids memorize, that we memorize, that we talk about, that we preach, that we study, 
Is it really even what those folks wrote? Is it an accurate picture, a reliable picture of what was initially written? Thank you, God. I know we could teach weeks on that, and I have, 13 weeks just on this one topic. But God, as we refresh our memories of that, if we've studied it before, let us be confident that we have a reliable picture of what was written. And now next week, God, get us ready to think carefully through, is what's written actually a message from you? Is there reason to believe that? Let us make that clear in our thinking. And even this week, give us an opportunity to utilize some of the basics of this information to bat back those things, those ideas that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God and help us to destroy those things with weapons of warfare for the right hand and the left. Not weapons of the flesh, but weapons that have divine power to take down those bad arguments in Jesus' name. Amen.